Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, liberal lawmakers on both sides of the Canada-U.S. border are vowing to defend access for legal abortions. Now, this happens, of course, as Americans' constitutional right appears to be threatened by that leaked Supreme Court document. What do we need to do on this side of the border to prevent that debate? Another troubling escalation in the invasion of Ukraine as new missile strikes target Lviv. Freelance journalist Matthew Best is over there, and he'll join us to give us some details. And who is Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca? Well, he joins us to talk about his party, his campaign, and his platform in the provincial election. All coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The big story right across North America for the last couple of days, of course, is the leaked report that the uh, American Supreme Court is probably going to overturn Roe versus Wade. Uh, there was a, a decision that was rendered, and uh, somebody got a copy of it, and uh, they're not denying it. Uh, and it's caused all sorts of uh, consternation and uh, conflict and debate on both sides of the border. Uh, there are some Canadians who are rather naively thinking, oh, that could never happen here. Uh, you might be surprised by that answer. Uh, Canadian politicians are responding to this uh, debate in the U.S. around the abortion. The Liberal Party says it has no intention to change the law, but... The NDP is calling on the government to make even more service available and accessible to more Canadians. Global's Kyle Benning has the details. Keep the Prime Minister and several members of his cabinet standing firm on ensuring access to abortions for Canadians. Families Minister Karina Gould says it's their job to ensure those services are available. Isle Health services are provided by provinces and territories. Our job at the federal level is to make sure the provinces and territories enable access to that right. And I- the Health Minister noted some provinces and territories have had portions of health transfer funding removed because of limited access to those services. The NDP is asking the Liberals to consider including contraception in the government's pharmacare plan. Conservative MPs didn't specifically address the issue Wednesday after a memo from the interim leader said not to answer questions on the topic. Kyle Benning, Global News. So to be sure, there is a debate to be had on this side of the border about, uh, well, how effective our, our rules and regulations are vis-a-vis abortions and uh, what the future may well be. Uh, to that end, we're so pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Gail Robinson, uh, Dr. Robinson is an author and a professor of psychiatry and obstetrics and gynecology with the Temporary Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Uh, doctor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for the time today. Oh, good morning. Uh, right off the top, let's talk about the U.S. decision. I know that uh, the Conservative Party here on this side of the border, uh, Candace Bergen, the interim leader, has said that her, none of her people are going to be talking about this publicly. Uh, but we have to. Uh, and if whatever your stand is on abortion... Uh, this has opened up a debate, and basically it's, it's shone the light on the Canadian uh, uh, attitude towards uh, abortion, I think, Doctor. And it's not as, as clean a picture as a lot of people might have thought. There's still a lot to be done here, isn't there? Well, there is, but it is certainly is a different picture from the yeah. United States. I mean, uh, first of all, this was not a legal decision. This was a political decision in the States. Uh, Trump specifically said he was going to choose judges who were uh, anti-abortion and would overturn Roe v. Wade, and they performed as expected. In Canada, we have a Supreme Court that's not a partisan court. You know, you, you made one error in terms of the fact that we don't have any laws about abortion. Uh, what happened is all of that disappeared in the early 80s. But uh, what uh, Trudeau is talking about is putting a law in place that ensures abortion. So that uh, is very important, I think, because precisely because 
for example, the Conservative Party is told to not comment on that. What does that mean if you're told don't say anything about something that is uh, so appalling to the majority of women, both in the States and Canada? Uh, so uh, I think it's very important that we don't just have an absence of restrictions. We have a law in place that guarantees women's reproductive rights. I think you characterize it very properly there. It's an absence of restrictions. And that varies from province to province, doesn't it? I was surprised, quite frankly, as we started to, to you know, lift some rocks and see the way things are really going here. There are only three clinics in New Brunswick that, that uh, you can go to. I mean, uh, and then if you don't live there, I mean, you know, how, how many hours do you have to drive if, in fact, you, that you need to access this sort of thing? Uh, and they've been fined, as uh, Minister Gold said. Of course, they've been uh, had a clawback on some of the money that they were supposed to get. Ontario has had that uh, happen to them as well. So there, there doesn't seem to be any sense of unanimity here, is there? Well, there's unanimity in terms of uh, believing that people should be able to have abortions. But the issue of abortion access has been a problem. Yeah. Uh, especially in New Brunswick and PEI, uh, but other places uh, need more clinics for the far-flung, the far-flung regions of of the provinces. And, and that's something the prime minister has addressed. And as I, we played the clip, of course, yesterday, of the you know, that he wants to protect that access and improve this and enshrine this in law. Uh, I'm certainly not a constitutional expert. Is is that feasible? Can you do something like that? Because I think a lot of Canadians are under the impression uh, that, well, you know, a new government, whatever political stripe they might be, uh, can change those laws anytime they want. Is is there a way to to, to solidify this so that can't happen? Uh, well, I'm not a lawyer, but as I understand it, it, it is possible to pass a law. And if they try to change a law, um, it would go to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court has always favored individual rights. So um, these these are uh, not just an issue of uh, do you believe in abortion or not believe in abortion? It's do you believe in women's rights to make choices over their own body? We don't have anything similar against men. Uh, you know, nobody objects to men having vasectomies. Uh, but um, so in our uh, sort of constitution and our Bill of Rights, I don't think a Supreme Court would ever accept the idea that women somehow lose their rights to control their bodies. Are you concerned, and I think you very accurately described the, the move by the, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court as a political move, uh, are you concerned that the, the, the about abortion here could become political too, along political lines? Well, I mean, we, we know that some conservatives uh, really uh, still are pushing to, uh, you know, reinstitute restrictions or prohibitions on abortion. We have to remember that we are a different country than the U.S. You know, there's kind of a war against women in the U.S., uh, they will pay for Viagra, but not for contraception. Uh, they don't have maternity leaves. Uh, this is the only country because of poor health care, the only developing country in the world that there's an increase in maternal deaths and neonatal deaths. So uh, all along, there are more restrictions against women. We like to think the U.S. is a very free and liberated place for women, but uh, it is not. In Canada, we believe in all of those rights for women, and we strongly support it. Uh, so the majority are strongly in favor of women having a right to choose. 
the politics and, and, and the political bent that's happened here, I, I think a lot of us find very troubling. And this all started basically with the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, some time ago. And uh, Mitch McConnell, of course, the, who was that time the, the leader of the Senate uh, for the Republicans, basically refused uh, to entertain uh, President Obama's uh, nominee to replace uh, Ginsburg on the court. And, and that really kind of started this whole ball rolling, didn't it? Well, that and, and of course, the uh, election of Trump, who uh, was uh, pro-abortion until he figured out that uh, it worked better for Republicans to be against abortion. Uh, so, uh, you know, e- even within our conservative party, not everybody is anti-abortion, whereas uh, the Republicans in the states, for the most part, have to walk that line. Uh, and we see in the states the states that have restrictive abortion uh, policies that are about to go into effect are the Republican states, not the Democratic states. And then that says that we got legal advice on, on the program about this yesterday, is the essence of what the uh, U.S. Supreme Court is essentially doing is saying this is not a uh, federal jurisdiction, that this is going to be up to individual states. That seems to be uh, the basis of, of what uh, Justice Leto talked about uh, in, with this leaked document. Uh, and as you say, the majority of, the, of Republican-owned states are, are going to make this as difficult as possible. So it's 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 a very precarious situation right now. Uh, and I know President Biden said he's going to try to do something about this too. But you know, there are midterm elections coming up, and it's going to be very problematic like this. What do we need to do on this side of the border, though, Doctor, to to make sure that there's, uh, as you say, a law in place? I mean, this got kicked around for so many years. I'm old enough to remember covering this uh, way back when, the Morgenthaler clinics and the violence and the, the bombings that went on in, in some situations. It was a horrific situation. Uh, we don't want a repeat of that. Is there a way that we can avoid that? Have we moved on from, from that mindset? Well, I think we've moved on from that. We, uh, you know, there are very few protesters outside of abortion clinics now, uh, and no doctor has been killed in uh, Canada uh, that uh, who does abortions, which has happened in the States. Uh, I think uh, we have to make sure that uh, our voices, which were very loud when uh, we got rid of any uh, abortion restrictions in the 80s, uh, that they're loud again and make it very clear to our government. But, you know, uh, Trudeau is on our side. Uh, when he had his candidates uh, running for office, uh, they all had to be people who were pro-choice. So, uh, and certainly the NDP are tend to be pro-choice. So I, I don't think we're going to have the same kind of fight that we had initially. In, in tragedy, there's always opportunity. Uh, and, and that may well be the case in this situation with uh, the, the ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, it's put abortion back on the front burner here. And, and as you mentioned, Doctor, it may be the best possible time to do that. There's essentially a deal between the, the Liberals and the, and the NDP who are very much like-minded on this. Uh, are you comfortable and, and confident that, that this may lead to some of the necessary changes and enshrinements of legislation to make sure that we don't have to go through this debate every three or four years? Well, let's say I'm hopefully optimistic. Okay. Uh, you, you never can tell what will happen. But I, I think this has really stirred up a hornet's nest. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, that, that Trudeau is very highly motivated. Uh, you have to remember that generally when things happen in the States, Trudeau doesn't comment on them. He says that's the States, we're Canada, it's different. This is one of the first times he's come out loud and clear to say we are not doing that here.
What about the conservative stance? Uh, as you mentioned, uh, interim leader Candace Bergen has basically told her caucus, the Senate members, and of course in, in the Commons, uh, don't even talk about this. Uh, don't render an opinion. Don't do anything else like this. And I'm guessing, from a political standpoint, given the conservative base, uh, that probably is a prudent political move. But don't we, as as a public, have a right to know what they do and where they stand on an issue like this? I'm sure uh, that their candidates for uh, leaders are going to be asked about this. And I'm sure uh, when they're running uh, in any campaign, they're going to be asked about this. Uh, You know, there is a a group in uh, the Conservative Party that are anti-abortion, but it isn't the whole of the Conservative Party. And it doesn't jibe with the majority of people in Canada who believe in women's rights to choose. And we saw that with the debate about uh, conversion therapy a while ago, too, and the vote that was uh, in the commons there, too. But, you know, and you're absolutely right. I mean, when Stephen Harper was the prime minister, I, you know, the, the, he didn't allow this to come to the floor. They, I think there was one private member's bill that didn't get very far. But for the most part, he just basically said, we're not even going to discuss this right now. Uh, and Doug Ford has essentially said the same thing here in Ontario, that uh, that if he's reelected, uh, he uh, says, I think the quote was, we're going to keep the abortion rules just like they are. I'm not so sure that the status quo is, is, is acceptable to some people, that there's an opportunity here for us to improve this situation, isn't there? Well, I think I think there is. I, I think that rather than just be an absence of regulation, there has to be a more positive uh, stance or law that says women uh, do have reproductive rights and do have the right to make a choice. Uh, and, uh, you know, the government cannot interfere with that. It's interesting the dynamic that was in place here, and, and I, I, you know, this situation that we're in right now, like you say, it's it's it's, it's not really a law. It, it seemed to be, and politicians tend to want to do this an awful lot of the time on controversial issues. Try to sci- find some middle ground that may please or not displease an equal number of people. So, and it just sat there. Uh, it's it can't sit there anymore now because of this. I mean, they're they're going to have to take some action here, aren't they? I, I certainly think so. And and I think it's timely. I believe that at the time they just thought it would stir up so such a controversy. But now we have 30 plus years of women uh, believing they have a right to abortion when they wish it. Uh, and uh, I, I don't think that the controversy is going to be uh, so extreme. There'll always be a, a small voice of women protesting uh, it, it themselves against the right to abortion. But we know the populace as a whole is for reproductive rights. And we saw that with conversion therapy, as I just mentioned. We saw it with the, the, the same-sex marriage de- debate that happened uh, way back when, too. I mean, there's, I guess there's a time and a place. Uh, if they tried to do that 10 years before that, there's no way that they would have been able to do that. Uh, but attitudes do change in a period of time. And uh, and I guess you, you may well be right. This may well be the time for us to say, okay, let's let's get this done now. We couldn't have done it 30 years ago or couldn't or didn't want to, whatever the case might be. But this this is a time where we have to have some action, I would think. Well, and, and fortunately, when you say about times change, uh, we have progressed in, in our attitudes, whereas uh, the state seems to be going backwards. A, a lot of people think that the next thing that the Supreme Court will tackle, and Texas has already made an initiative in this, is to stop same-sex same marriage. So yeah. there's a total erosion of rights going on in the states, whereas uh, we are trying to enshi- enshrine those rights in Canada. 
Well, if there's one thing, I mean, we should be outraged by the decision, uh, certainly, but we should also be outraged that there's a group of politicians that are basically trying to impose their morality uh, onto the rest of the country. And, and that's not supposed to be their job. I mean, they're supposed to do what's best for the country. So I don't know if what's going to happen in the States, but it, as you say, we've got an opportunity here and it's it's up to the, uh, the elected officials in Ottawa right now to do something about this. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time today. Uh, great conversation. We have to keep this uh, on that front burner. Uh, and make sure that they are going to move on this. And I appreciate your time and hopefully some further discussions uh, of a positive result about what can happen here further down the road for us. Absolutely. Well, thank you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As we've heard almost on a daily basis now, Russian rocket uh, accounts, uh, they've hit dozens of targets across Ukraine. Fierce intensification of the war that appears to be aimed at cutting off Ukraine's supply of weapons uh, from NATO countries. Uh, Matthew Best has been over there for quite some time. Matthew is a freelance journalist for the Globe and Mail and Ottawa citizen and is uh, right in the thick of things. And he joins us on the program uh, to give us an update. Uh, Matthew, I hope you're doing well and staying safe, first of all. I'm doing well. Uh, I'm I'm thankful. I did hear the missile strikes uh, the other day. Uh, They were actually fairly close to me, but otherwise I was not affected, thankfully. Some of the reports I've seen on this are downright troubling. I mean, you know, as I say, we're sitting here in North America and looking at the the daily reports here, and that's bad enough. But I mean, you're you're there right in the thick of things. Uh, And my understanding was the weather got a little bit nicer a couple of days ago, uh, yesterday, including and people were out on outdoor patios, etc. And then all of a sudden, these these missiles started raining down on them. Uh, It's gotten to be go beyond disconcerting right now. Are people fearful right now that that they may be next at, at target? Well, as I mentioned uh, last time, you know, there was a very somber mood in the streets and the streets went quiet when there was fatalities. But like you said, now people have come out in droves, weather's gotten nice and that sort of wore off after a couple of weeks. And now um, I I think, unfortunately, uh, because there were no fatalities uh, this time around, only two injuries. I mean, it's very fortunate that there were no fatalities, but unfortunately, it hasn't had that shock effect uh, that we saw last time when there were fatalities, when there were very unfortunately a lot more people injured and uh, a lot of people dead from those strikes and that has sort of put the city right back into um kind of business as usual mode I, but you know just the very thought of it i mean this is a large city where you are right now of course we've talked about that in the past and you don't expect missile attacks in large cities that just doesn't seem to happen i mean that's not the battleground that's not supposed to be the battleground you know, it's like our London listeners, you know, if at Richmond and Oxford Street, if all of a sudden missiles start raining down or in downtown Hamilton, if that starts happening. Uh, it, and it, I don't I do know that, you know, they're trying to, to evacuate people. We'll talk about that in a second, especially around Mariupol. But it seems as if an awful lot of the population, as you've been reporting, are just going to hang in there. I'm, I'm you know, we're not leaving anyway. You're not going to scare us away. They're uh, very, very stubborn people. Uh, They're very, very angry uh, right now. And that anger is manifesting a lot as that kind of stubbornness. Uh, So, you know, with the strikes, um, they were mentioning that the military administrator and the mayor were mentioning that, you know, these were targeting civilian infrastructure, that they had targeted power substations, that it affected, uh, you know, the railways that were bringing refugees out as well as arms in. It affected, uh, you know, the hospitals that had to go to their backup generators and that they didn't, uh, you know, kind of have this uh, capacity to to run those around the clock on those generators. And yet still, people are just have that to hell with it attitude. It's remarkable, really, to see what's happening. We'll get back to Lviv in a second. What are you hearing about Mariupol? I know that there, there was an attempt earlier this week to evacuate a number of, of, of 
citizens that were stuck in, in this huge, huge factory uh, to try to get them out. There's still apparently Ukraine military in there and still a lot of civilians. Uh, by some reports of what I'm hearing anyway, Matthew, is uh, some of those civilians may be there because they're afraid to leave. Uh, they're afraid to be there, but they're afraid to leave too, but I guess for fear that they're going to be targets. Uh, there doesn't seem to still be much of an agreement or an understanding uh, between the Russians uh, and Ukraine, certainly, uh, to try to create safe passage for these people. Well, this has been an ongoing debate for over a month now of uh, how do we create a humanitarian corridor in Mariupol. The Ukrainians announced that one's been created. The next day we get an announcement that that hasn't worked out because of the Russians. Uh, the steel plant, uh, you know, as you said, the people are there taking shelter because the only thing between them and, you know, open field between them and the Russians are the Ukrainian soldiers. You kind of hit the nail on the head that you're scared to stay, but you're more scared to leave. Um, and there is this constant cycle of trying to create those humanitarian corridors, trying to get uh, NGOs in to help them out that just constantly falls apart we lose contact with the steel plant we regain contact with them over and over and over again and it seems almost like this vicious cycle uh, that has no solution a few weeks ago i might have told you you know oh well these negotiations are open and we might see something happening now if i see a new negotiation or a new notion of opening corridors up and getting people out it's well can I believe that it's really going to, you know, we're going to see that follow through? President, French President Macron had another phone call uh, with Vladimir Putin. They seem to have had some sort of a relationship established anyway. Uh, and, and asked about the peace talks and about some sort of a, 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 a ceasefire. And of course, as you've been reporting ever since you've been over there, Putin just turns it around and says, I'm, I'm willing to talk, but it's the Ukrainians that don't seem to want to do anything about this here. So go talk to them about it. Uh, which doesn't seem to really be the case, because uh, I know you've talked to some of the political officials uh, where you are in Lviv, and even when you've traveled around to, to some of the other communities, uh, they're very much wanting to see some sort of a peace talk like that. But when Putin has an attitude like that, Matthew, it, it doesn't really stir much optimism that there's going to be much headway made in those talks. No, there isn't uh, much optimism there. I know that the ongoing claim is that, you know, they'll start talking, you know, peace with Ukraine, when the west basically stops uh assisting ukraine once uh you know western europe and north america and our allies around the world stop supporting the country and leave them on their own that's when you know peace will reign when in reality i think that's just going to cause more missiles to rain and and let's talk about those missiles for just a second because i know in in past conflicts in other parts of the world uh, you know, we've heard about civilian casualties and said, oops, okay, that didn't. But these, uh, my understanding is these are, I guess what our listeners might have, uh, be able to relate to, these are basically cruise missiles. I mean, these things, they know where they're going and they know what they're going to hit when they launch these things. Uh, and it just seems as if the focus right now is is on citizen targets, not on necessarily military targets. This was something that was stressed heavily at the press briefing uh, with the military administrator and the mayor of Lviv was that these were civilian targets you're exactly right these are cruise missiles uh they came um you know from basically strategic planes uh coming operating out of the sea and were fired in knowing exactly where these are going their tolerances for their targeting is about five meters it's very tight five meters can be actually you know fairly big if you're hitting 
one target versus another, but in terms of precision, that's that's fairly precise. They know what they're going for. They know they're targeting water pumping stations. They know they're targeting, um, you know, power substations. And weeks ago, they knew that they were targeting those garages and warehouses. None of those were military targets. And there are some military targets here in Lviv. There are, you know, places where guards might receive training or, um, you know, police depots or security apparatuses or even a semi you know semi-military target like a city hall that might be targeted uh because it has political leaders in it but those aren't getting hit when we see the devastation that's going on and, and the desire to try to find some sort of a ceasefire and this conflict uh, you know i don't think anybody thought it was going to go on long, as long as it has and you know we've talked about the as you say the resolve of, of the ukrainian people and a certain of, of their president as well but the longer this goes on, of course, there's the concern about uh, what Ukraine is going to look like uh, coming out the other end and when that's actually going to happen. Uh, I've seen some stories, and I'm sure you've heard it because you're on the ground there, uh, about some concern from some Ukrainian officials that uh, there are citizenry who are, uh, shall we say, complicit with the Russian soldiers. Which for, two points on that. First of all, that happens in, in conflicts. I mean, uh, you know, there, there were there were French people that worked for the Nazis uh, during the, the World War Two. I mean, that happens from time to time. Not a lot of them, but uh, and I know that there's a certain you know realm of traitorism people like, might want to insinuate in situations like that. But on the other hand, there's an awful lot of people there with Russian heritage, so you can understand that there may be uh, some people who may be taking Putin's side on this. Is that a, a major concern with officials there? That they could be working, citizens could be working uh, in nefarious ways to try to assist the Russians? I think it's more of a concern the farther east you go. Um, That's where places that heavily sort of do assert that Russian identity and people were quite sympathetic uh, to to Russia before uh, would be. Out here in, you know, the the further west you go, that's not not really the case out here. it's a it's sort of a, an ethno and geographic uh, kind of situation. We I spoke to a historian um, about a week ago who sort of mentioned that you know Western Ukraine isn't part of Putin's uh, sort of Russian Empire because this is a place that was part of the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth. It was part of um, you know Poland. It was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. This isn't a place that has Russian ethnography. Well, if you go out to the Donbass, that is. So as you move out there, that's where we start seeing lots of accusations of uh, being, you know, sort of Russian spies or Russian collaborators. And we've seen we've seen pictures of people, uh, bodies of people uh, who are alleged to have been killed because they were said to be collaborating with the Russians. Mm. Boris Johnson was over there the other day, met with the, the president, of course, in, in a face-to-face meeting and addressed uh, the Ukraine parliament uh, by video. Uh, he started using words that I was somewhat surprised by, actually, Matthew. Uh, he says, victory, uh, Ukraine will win. Uh, and there are some critics, and I know you've talked to some of them on the streets there, uh, that are suggesting what NATO's doing here is they're, they're ensuring that, that, that Ukraine doesn't lose, but not necessarily win. And there, and there is a distinction there. Do Boris Johnson's comments, he's representing the UK, but they are a strong NATO member, one of the stronger NATO members. Does that indicate that they may be willing to ramp things up against the Russians right now? Because uh, as you say, the Russians are attacking that supply chain that's coming over from Poland right now. Uh, is there a mood, do you get the sense from from some of the NATO officials, that it's time to ramp it up and play hardball with these guys back? I mean, they've spent, as you've said, the last number of weeks, 
telling Putin what they don't do and what they won't do. Uh, and I know you don't necessarily give away your plan and say, here's what we are going to do. But, uh, you know, there's a concern here that the Russians are going to ramp things up in a couple of days during the anniversary that you've been talking about, about uh, the defeat of the Nazis in World War II. Will NATO follow suit and ramp it up as well? That's a tough question to answer. Um, and it depends how we're talking about ramping it up. This might be, you know, ramping it up in terms of delivering more aid uh, if if the Russians escalate, I think is a distinct possibility. But um, one of the things that's worth keeping in mind is that, you know, with so many embassies that have moved, for example, to Lviv from Kiev that have moved uh, to Lviv, um, they're sort of still here and still being under that level of threat. These are, you know, it's this is the territory of those nations. Um, and they haven't used it as an excuse to, to get involved yet. And uh, Russia is sort of... I think being gentle on the, that does put a, a kind of invisible dome around the city to protect it, uh, to stop those NATO members from getting involved. Um, I think there's still an ongoing concern with you know the, the leadership of NATO that any sort of greater involvement would provoke essentially World War III. Um, it's not much difference to the Ukrainians who would love that because they're already living through World War III and they're already living you know, in places where if they do retake the cities, as you said, uh, there's a difference between winning and losing, or I'm sorry, winning and simply not losing. If they do retake those cities, they're retaking ruins. Um, but to, uh, you know, sort of start sending people over to the point where we're escalating to all-out conflict, I still don't uh, see that as very likely. There's a, a report earlier this week from a British tabloid that actually has pretty strong ties to the British uh, uh, intelligence agencies that suggests that Putin uh, may well be in danger in his own country right now, that there are a number of, uh, we're told, uh, former generals, maybe even some serving generals right now, and a number of uh, people who worked in the KGB uh, with Putin that are, are planning some sort of a coup. Uh, I guess, you know, in a place like Russia, that that's not an uncommon rumor to be going around there. Have you heard that on the streets? Are people talking about that right now? By the way, part B of, of uh, the reporting uh, was that uh, if, in fact, there is a successful coup, uh, that Russia would just totally withdraw from Ukraine. So it's 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 an enticing concept, but is is it something people are talking about? And is is there any chance that that actually could happen? Well, it's something people have been talking about here for a long time. Uh, I sort of make the joke here that you know Russia's national sport is Olympic doping, but their second most popular sport is coups d'état, and that's exactly what people have been thinking and looking forward to um, since. I mean basically since February 24th, uh, as, and I did read that same uh, report, uh, as, you know, it was mentioned that the, the perception in Russia right now is that this is a strategic and economic disaster. And there's no doubt about it. This was expected to be, uh, you know, shock and awe total victory within a week. And it hasn't. Uh, it's causing a lot of pressure on uh, the Russian economy, on the oligarchs who are losing, you know, everything they have. And uh, it, frankly, an embarrassment to career officers uh, who have to live with these decisions or you know or or they've been killed and that's why they don't have to live with them um is it realistic i mean i i definitely put it up there as you know that is a very likely possibility that you know this is sort of a a very i hesitate even to call russia a democracy but it does have ballots so a very flawed and failed democracy uh where it's quite likely that you know uh, uh, some sort of military junta or intelligence apparatus takes over and pulls out uh, to save face and and sort of that would be their glory is look we we stopped this disastrous war that this guy led us into 
Well, and we've seen that happen in the past in history, haven't we? I mean, it's very rare that a, that a Russian president or a Russian politician of any sort uh, retires. They either die in office or they're killed uh, in, invariably when things like this happen. So you can get that. And, and to your point, and I was pretty intrigued by that as I read that article too earlier this week, the people that are purportedly involved in this, if in fact this is actually being planned, they know what's going on. I mean, they know the real numbers. They're not falling for the PR job that, uh, that uh, Putin's trying to put over on the Russian people. Uh, they see the real numbers and they see the the impact that uh, the sanctions are having and everything else. And I got to figure that there's going to be some level of frustration there because that's their money uh, and, and their power base right now that they're being impacted by. Oh, absolutely is. This is you know, this was essentially, my take on it was that this invasion was done for them. Uh, this is like a, a very bad, very bloody investment where the sort of, the the, the rich folks, the oligarchs, uh, the, you know, the the political higher-ups kind of did this to, to enrich themselves and to take control for themselves. And now this is, you know, uh, the military equivalent of a stock market crash where, okay, we put this uh, kind of investment in, and we put you know our people in, we put our soldiers in, we put our money in, and now we're losing everything. And you know whose head rolls in that situation? It's it's the guy at the top. And and, and, uh, and there's there's ego here too. I mean, we've known about that, but with Putin for for some years now, and I'm I'm sure that there's some small part of of Putin that wants this to be his legacy. I'm, I reunited the USSR. Uh, you know, I I got all that back, and you know the glory to us as a result of that. I'm not sure that that's everybody's vision there right now, but certainly we're hearing intelligence reports that that seems to be what he wants to do. And that even if he is successful in Ukraine, and I don't even know how you define success these days with what's going on there, uh, that he has ambitions to go to other countries right off the bat and, and simply continue this offensive. So, I, the, you know, the mindset here, and I know President Zelensky's talked about this, is stop this here in my country, because if you don't, uh, you know, some other country is going to be next. That is a, a very fair point and a very realistic concern. I mean, people say sort of, you know, it's day whatever of the Russian invasion that started on February 24th. The reality is it's not. Here it goes back all the way to Crimea and, and its seizure. And if you really look at it and really consider it, it actually goes out even farther to 2008 in Georgia with South Ossetia, which was another part of this sort of Russian empire building. There's a very realistic fear that whatever part of uh, this Putin's empire he sees as his, he's just going to grab up. And this war being very realistically looked at is really a continuation of, you know, almost 15 years later, a decade and a half later, of something that was started uh, back in the, the late 2000s. Uh, that wasn't just, you know, the same country. It wasn't just Ukraine. It was all over the place. It was the hard crackdown in Chechnya. It was a seizure of South Ossetia. It was the seizure of Crimea. And, you know, where's next? What is... Uh, does a Baltic country have a reason to fear? I definitely think so. Do other countries, uh, you know, nearby have a reason to fear? I definitely think so. I think, you know, even Finland has a reason to be afraid. Exactly. So, yeah, as a result of uh, their desire right now to be a part of NATO. Uh, Matthew, thank you so much for the update. Uh, stay well, please, and stay safe. And uh, we'll talk again in a couple of days, I'm sure. Uh, but I do appreciate the time today. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Take care. Matthew Best, freelance journalist of the Globe and Mail and Ottawa Citizen, who is in Lviv, uh, watching the events unfold there. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As we mentioned, we're in election mode here in the province of Ontario. The writ came down at the beginning of the week. Uh, June 2nd is election day here in the province. And although at this point, it seems as if uh, Doug Ford 
it has a substantial lead in the polls. I mean, a lot can happen in politics, and it depends an awful lot, of course, on what uh, topics are going to be talked about during the debates and, and where we are right now. Well, one of the topics that uh, was jumping all over us yesterday was highways. Doug Ford said he wants to build a lot more highways here in Ontario. And the one that everyone wants to talk about is the proposed highway that would serve the greater Toronto area. It's on the minds of uh, not just Torontonians and people in the GTA, but uh, we're talking about the impact it's going to have on this campaign. Rob Westgate has some details. Progressive Conservative leader Doug Ford will make an announcement in Pickering, while NDP leader Andrea Horvath will talk health care in Toronto. Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca starts the day in Woodbridge with a platform announcement, and Green Party leader Mike Schreiner makes an appearance in Guelph. Yesterday, the frontrunners offered up contrasting plans on a proposed highway north of Toronto. Ford promising to go ahead with its construction, while Horvath and Del Duca say they'll scrap the idea. Rob Westgate, the Canadian Press. Let's uh, bring the Ontario Liberal leader into the conversation. Uh, Stephen Del Duca is the leader of the Ontario Liberal Party and joins us on the Bill Keller Show to talk about some of these issues. Uh, Mr. Del Duca, thank you so much. Good to have you on the program again. Great to be back on. Thank you. Thank you. Let's talk highways. We'll start right off the bat. Uh, Doug Ford was uh, very, very demanding about this from day one. Uh, We've seen, I don't know how many photo ops of he standing in front of road graders and everything else. And it's it's, uh, Highway 413 and the the Bradford Bypass. But let's talk about 413. It's going to have an impact uh, on an awful lot of people here in uh, southern Ontario. Uh, you're opposed to it. He says he's going to go through with this. Uh, when asked how much it's going to cost, he said, well, he's not talking about it. So uh, <laughs> we're going to have to make a decision, I guess, based on not all the information we really need to have. What's your stand on this? And, and what would you do if you became premier and won the next election? How would you handle 413? Well, thanks very much for that question. So when I was Minister of Transportation, I was proud of the fact that I was the minister who paused Highway 413. Then I was part of a government that stopped it the first time because... We appointed an independent panel. That panel came back with a report saying that if built, only a handful of commuters would save about 30 seconds a day on their commute. You know, that highway will end up costing more than $10 billion. It's going to pave over parts of the Green Belt, destroy farmland and wetlands. It makes no sense. So I've made a commitment. If elected as premier, I will kill the Highway 413 project once and for all. And Ontario Liberals will take those $10 billion and invest them instead in repairing our existing public schools and building new schools, 200 new schools right across Ontario. So we'll cancel the highway and invest your money instead in public education everywhere. To that point, though, it's, it's interesting. I, I've, I've seen two polls in the last uh, four or five days since the, the writ came down. One sponsored by an environmental group that says this is, as you just mentioned, a, a bad idea we should not go forward on. Uh, the other was sponsored by uh, by a labor group uh, that said, yes, uh, the majority of people in this province are in favor of that. So in, in my mind, that cancels the two of them out. But is, is, is your opposition to this based on, on, on philosophy or a pragmatism here? Uh, in other words, does it, does it really matter how some people feel about this? Or is you doing this because it's, quote, unquote, the right thing to do? Look, I think leaders have to lead, and we have a responsibility to be straight up with the people of this province. You you know, you know, mentioned in your introduction that Doug Ford couldn't even tell the people of Ontario yesterday what this reckless highway is going to cost. And that's because he's hiding the number from the people of this province. He knows it's going to be a skyrocketing cost, multi-billions of dollars. I say this with authority as a former Minister of Transportation. It's going to take more than 10 years to build at a cost of $10 billion plus dollars. And it's not going to help commuters. It's not going to give anybody real relief. What I do know is a father who's got two kids in public education and witnessed what we all had to go through these past two years is that 
we need school buildings to be in a better state of repair. We need windows that can open and close in our classrooms and better air ventilation. And I would much rather take your hard-earned money and mine and invest it in repairing schools across the province and building new schools rather than Doug Ford's plan to make the richest friends that he's got even richer. And that's the real reason he wants to build that highway. Talk about the environmental impact. I know that that may not be front of mind for an awful lot of people, but it should be, uh, at least, uh, you know, in the top three or four. We've talked about our concerns about the environment. The Green Belt was a, basically, it was a, a philosophical thing. It was the McGinney government that brought it in, but it had been right. talked about for years and years. And uh, I, I'm not going to sit here and say it was done perfectly because it wasn't. Uh, there's a lot that needs to be fixed. I, I look at this as it's 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 a very living thing. And you know, have to move it around and, and check it and add to it, I hope, anyway. But I'm in, I'm concerned about the 413 project, especially, and the impact it's going to have on marshlands, et cetera. And, uh, and even the Bradford Bypass project, uh, just north near, near Barrie, anyway, uh, it's going to have a huge impact on the, the Holland Marsh watershed. That's one of the most rich and, 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 I guess, fruitful, if I could use that expression, areas of agriculture areas of the country. Uh, do you feel as if the Greenbelt is under attack now? Well, it is, of course. I mean, we, we, we saw when Doug Ford was running to be leader of his party, and then became leader of his party a few years ago. The videotape that emerged that said he was planning to pave over the Greenbelt. And now proof he wants to build for the 413, which, by the way, runs through a portion of my home community of Vaughan. And it's that portion that will pave over a large chunk of the Greenbelt in New York region. And you're 100% right about wetlands. We're talking about prime agricultural land that will help us grow local food. All of it's going to get paved over and be destroyed forever. And at the end of it all, we're going to have this massive new highway that's going to contribute to gridlock not actually solve gridlock uh, so it's a waste of money it is going to make some really wealthy people who donate a lot of money to doug ford's campaign even richer but it's not going to help you or me and again ontario liberals we released a plan a few days ago to protect our environment to increase our uh, protected spaces in this create five new provincial parks plant 800 million new trees uh, we introduced buck a ride province-wide we're going to drop transit fares down to one dollar per trip and forty dollars for a monthly pass those are sustainable ideas. Those are, uh, you know, environmental friendly ideas, not what Doug Ford wants to do. And again, it's, it's about the wrong priorities and a real choice in this election between the Ford conservatives who want to drag us backwards and a new Ontario liberal team that wants to move the province forward. Well, let's talk about the Bucker ride. I mean, it's, it, uh, I'm, it sounds an intriguing idea, quite frankly, but at the same time, it's going to cost the government an awful lot of money. Where's the money going to come from? Yeah, so our plan when we release our platform over the next several days will be fully costed, but we're not hiding the details the way that Doug Ford has been hiding the details about the 413. We believe in year one, it'll cost about $710 million, and in year two, about $1.1 billion. We're going to keep it in place until January 2024, because we've seen transit ridership drop during this pandemic as more people have been working from home, and others have been concerned about getting onto public transit because of the nature of the virus. But we need people on public transit. Our, our plan, Buck a Ride province-wide, will not only save people in Hamilton and beyond lots of money. I'm talking about hundreds of dollars each and every month. It's also going to get at least 400,000 cars off of our roads. Again, good for the environment, good for the economy. So this is about, about affordability. It's about pushing transit ridership up. That's a real plan that people can count on. Well, we've always talked about this. You know about the debate in Hamilton, of course, about light rail transit. Uh, you've been uh, a part of that uh, from the beginning. Uh, and I've always maintained that, look, if, for public transit to work and to, and to prosper, it has to be convenient and affordable. And right now it's neither. 
uh, in many parts of the province right now. So I, so I agree with that. But I also want to move on to what's going to be driving on whatever highways are going to be built uh, in situation. And there is a commitment from the Ford uh, team right now to, to be looking at EVs. And I think that's great news. You know, the, uh, the investment by government, but uh, the investment by the automakers is great. But at the same time, uh, we, this is only going to work, Stephen, if, if people buy them. And uh, right now, as you say, we've got the highest rate of inflation we've had in over 40 years. Interest rates are on the rise. There are a lot of people in this province right now that just can't afford to buy a new vehicle of any kind, but especially an EV, uh, without a rebate program. BC right. has one. Quebec has one. Ontario used to have one. Would you bring back that rebate program to encourage people to look at UVs as an alternative? Yeah, absolutely we would. So, you know, my wife and I made a decision about five years ago to, to get our first electric vehicle. And at that time, you're 100% right. In Ontario, there was a rebate or an incentive program. We were able to knock $14,000 off the sticker price of, uh, of the car that we got five years ago. We had $1,500 that came back in a rebate to help us put a charging, uh, a charging station in our garage. And Doug Ford comes to office and cancels all of that and says, no, you're on your own. And now, as we head into an election, or we're in an election now, he's trying to talk a good game about his belief for electric vehicles, and he talks a good game about how people are having some affordability challenges, but he doesn't want to reinstate the incentive program. Ontario Liberals will. We'll give you back $8,000 on a qualifying electric vehicle and another 1500 back on a home-based charging station. You match that up to what the federal government does, which is $5,000 for the vehicles, that's a $13,000 rebate to make it easier and more affordable for people who want to make this transition, who want to do their part to clean up the environment and fight climate change. It's going to make it easier and more affordable for them to do so. Again, it's about growing a province that's sustainable. Doug Ford just doesn't get it. Stephen, I know your time is tight, but there's one other area that I do want to touch on, uh, and that's long-term care facilities. I mean, it, it's it, the pandemic did not create the the crisis, but it certainly shone the light on it, and it made a, a, a situation that was already in crisis that much worse. And I've been frustrated uh, through these number of years, as of many Ontarians, about the fact that uh, you know the, the, they seem to be paying lip service to improvements here, but they're not really getting the job done. And, and there's talk about you know the private sector versus uh, publicly owned facilities. There's a huge difference in the level of care there and the mortality rate in these facilities. How would your government tackle the long-term care problem? Well, thanks for that question as well. You know, I tell people I was really lucky in my life to be close to all four of my grandparents. Uh, my, my mom and dad are in their 80s now. They live close to where I live in Woodbridge. Uh, and, and so obviously I see that they're, you know, they're experiencing some challenges. But here's the thing. Every single senior in this province that I speak with tells me over and over and over again, they want to stay at home. They want to live in their own home and be safe and healthy and really have the dignity that, frankly, they've earned as they built this province of ours. And Ontario Liberals will help them achieve that. We're going to have a home care first guarantee. Over four years, we will invest $4.4 billion new dollars so that 400,000 additional seniors in this province can access community-based home care. That means maybe help with taking a shower or making a meal or just even a friendly face to have a conversation with, which many of our seniors don't get the chance to have right now. So we're going to deliver that at the same time as ending for-profit long-term care. And as we expand our long-term care system by building 30,000 new spaces and rehabilitating 28,000 long-term care spaces, we're going to get rid of the institutionalization or warehousing of our seniors and instead put them in homes that actually feel like homes, like my home or yours. Four, six, eight, ten seniors living together with a PSW, personal support worker or a nurse or other care that they need 24-7. That's better for their mental health. And again, I just want to stress, Ontario seniors have earned 
the right to have the proper safety, good health, and dignity. And it's time that we, we trigger a revolution in seniors' care in this province, and Ontario Liberals will deliver on that. Rules are only as good, though, as, as their enforcement. Uh, and we know that there are some, quote-unquote, regulations with long-term care facilities. Uh, but the inspections, it's appalling, the number of inspections that have taken place right. over the last couple of yeah. years. Uh, how, does, how would your government, if you uh, win the election, how would you address that? Well, we're going to bring back the inspections that need, needed to be there in the, in, in the first place, and Doug Ford got rid of them prior to the pandemic. We're going to toughen the penalties, strengthen the penalties and fines that will exist for long-term care operators that aren't doing what they need to be doing to protect our seniors. Again, we're going to end for-profit long-term care with a target date of 2028 for that. And we're also going to repeal the legislation that Doug Ford introduced and passed, legislation that protects or shields uh, those uh, long-term care operators from legal liability if they're not doing the right thing. So we're going to get rid of that legislation so that if they're not doing the right thing, there are potential consequences that they'll have to face. Uh, Stephen, we'll have to leave it there. I know how tight uh, timelines are. Uh, hopefully, this is the first of a, a number of conversations we can have uh, as we Sounds head towards great. Election Day. Thank you so much That'll for the time awesome. today. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Take care. Stephen DeLuca, the leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.